PodRocket is sponsored by LogRocket, a front-end monitoring and product analytics solution. Don't know what that is? Go to LogRocket.com. Thanks. Uh, welcome to Pod Rocket. On this episode, there's me, Brian. The guest is Monarch Wadia. Hi, Monarch. Hello. And then also Kate Trahan, producer extraordinaire, uh, is also making an appearance. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Hello, Kate. What we usually do, uh, because the guests are better at introducing themselves than I am, is uh, we just ask Monarch to introduce himself. So what should the people know about you, you know, within like... Mm. 20 to 30 seconds. I don't know how deep and metaphysical you can get on your initial intro. I mean, is there such a thing as a self? But anyway, uh, before we go there, um, I'm a, I'm a software developer. Um, I shy away from the term engineer because I don't think software development is engineering, first of all. Um, I've been doing this for almost 10 years. Um, I've worked in Java, Rails, JavaScript, dabbled in you know the normal smorgasbord of languages, PHP, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. I mean, I shouldn't have started with PHP, but, um, and then I went into JavaScript and then Rails. So people are judging me hardcore right now. Anyway, um, my, uh, I, I've, I've run a software development firm for the past five years. Um, during that time, I've served more than 40 clients going from all the way from massive enterprise banks, financial institutions, all the way down to really cool startups, um, doing really interesting things with super interesting architectural choices. And, um, all of that was fun and it was great, but I started looking for a larger meaning and purpose for my life and my work. And building code was always fulfilling, but what I was always missing in it was I was never connected to the person who uh, benefited from my work. Like I was never connected to the person who um, would actually use the software. That was something that product use uh, product does. That's something that um, you know the customer service or the account management or the sales team does. The developer stuck kind of behind a screen um, picking up tickets from Jira, and I I didn't really enjoy that. And it's I, I really love coding. I just didn't enjoy being disconnected. So I started iterating about um, almost two years, one and a half, two years ago on a product. And we iterated and we iterated. We started off as an HR kind of product. We didn't really know, um, wound our way around the market. Um, and eventually we landed squarely in the center of this massive, quiet revolution called the bootcamp industry that's happening right under our noses and nobody's talking about it. Um, or they're talking about it dismissively, kind of like how people used to talk about JavaScript or Rails or Java when those technologies were new. They would all just be dismissive about it. Eventually, they saw the power of those technologies. And the same thing is weirdly happening with the bootcamp market. Um, and I'm here to talk about that. My work has been at Mintbean for the last, um, you know, like I said, year and a half, uh, two years. We do hackathons and events. Uh, we've done 86 hackathons, 180 or so online events, including the hackathons and various different webinars, workshops. And um, we speak primarily to the junior developer, especially bootcamp developers. Um, and we are one of the largest advocates for the bootcamp grad after they come out of bootcamp and they're looking for their first job. And 
at that point, you kind of feel like uh, Frodo and Mordor, and you don't know what to do. You're you're kind of following all these weird little golem creatures around, and you need a Gandalf. I'm, I'm trying to I'm kind of trying to be the Gandalf uh, in the story, kinda. Although Gandalf mysteriously disappeared right around the time they needed him most. Not gonna go there, um, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell, guys. No, that's an impressive number of of uh, of hackathons for sure. I didn't realize it was it was that high. Cool. So we'll for sure talk about kind of, I guess, junior developers or new developers or people new uh, to coding. Um, but I want to start off with, and it's basically it's super self-indulgent just for me, um, but I want to start off with a, with a, a spicy tweet and then asking you to, <laughs> then asking you to kind of evaluate it. I won't, we can maybe talk about putting the link to the tweet in, uh, in the show notes later. Cause I don't want to, I don't necessarily want to blow this person up. I feel like they've taken enough abuse over the last maybe day or so, but here, I'll just read it. And then, uh, and then let me know what you think. Cause I am curious. Okay. Here's the tweet. In the past two weeks, I interviewed more than 30 junior front end developers. Most of them did not have formal CS education. They took online classes and attended boot camps instead. Almost none of them knew SQL. All of them knew Mongo. Front-end training is seriously broken. Mm-hmm. Do you feel, do you agree, disagree with any of those things? So work, that, that tweet, the person who tweeted it, um, I looked at their Twitter profile briefly. Nothing but respect for the person, but the idea here is so seriously out of whack and out of line with reality um, on so many different levels. I'll I'll start. um, And again, this is about the idea, not the person. And the idea over here is really the thing that I've been working to change for a while now. Um, First off, if you pick 30 random junior front-end developers, you're going to get 30 random junior front-end developers. So let's start with that. Um, You have to temper your expectation. And, if most of them did not have a CS education, that to me speaks volumes about how fast computer science degrees are churning out developers more than how effective boot camps and online education is at teaching front-end developers. To me, it speaks to the fact that most most computer science you know, um, programs are just not churning out developers at the rate that the the industry needs. And then we can go into the average quality of the university developer. We can talk about that stuff and compare that to boot camps. But in my experience, it's actually not that different. Um, And this person um, kind of just spun it in a way that really irked me. Um, they, they, They said most of them did not have formal CS education. They took online classes and attended boot camps instead. Almost none of them knew SQL, all of them knew Mongo. So I, I really don't understand where this traditionalist mindset is coming from in an industry that's been so forward-thinking in so many other areas, um, that's so progressive, and that is in many ways the poster child of industries um, for many, many different reasons, uh, be that um you know, we, we take a lot of flack for diversity, equity, inclusion, but at the same time, we, I, I don't think there's another industry that does as much or tries to do as much for DEI. Um, we are constantly pushing the frontiers of what humanity is capable of and how we work and how we live. Um, and in a world where we're constantly testing first principles, a traditionalist mindset that says you need to know SQL it feels like an anachronism. It feels like, where is that coming from? 
And it really started bothering me. And so I replied and started, you know, um, responding to this person. I don't know if I quite stepped into flame war territory, but, you know, like I, I really wanted to address what they said. Um, and then they ended with front-end training is seriously broken. And that just completely, I don't know. I don't know. It just, it just really irked me. Um, first off, as a front-end developer, you don't need databases. You don't need databases as a front-end developer. On top of that, to pile on and say, not only do you need databases, but you need something that requires a rigorous education to fully understand, which is SQL, which is a completely different paradigm. Um, it's a, a thought pattern, a kind of thought pattern unto itself. It's not like any other programming language paradigm at all. It's declarative. You need to know set theory. You need to know what how, how all of how to combine different sets of data. Um, all of that is completely irrelevant to front-end development. And I constantly see this traditionalist mindset everywhere right now. Thankfully, it's dying. Thankfully, it's declining. But whenever I see it, I, I, I kind of, you know, I have to take pause, be, try and be compassionate to the person who's expressing those viewpoints and realize that, okay, well, maybe what I'm seeing is not what that other person is seeing. What that other person is seeing is something that they've been trained to see by their university education, by the, until five years ago, very traditionalist, very uh, engineering-driven mindset that used to be in the market and is slowly declining. Um, we're no longer, I, I don't think there's a strong case to be made for front-end development to be called engineering. I do not think it's engineering. Um, Back-end development it's becoming less and less engineering. As far as you can even call software development engineering, it's becoming less and less engineering. And the entire field of software development is becoming more democratic. And asking a front-end developer to know SQL is just gatekeeping. It's just pure gatekeeping. And that's kind of what irked me over there. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. And and I don't, I mean, I didn't even see that you had replied. I, I saw it because uh, Lori Barth had replied and we had her on the podcast uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, and, you know, her response was, and I want to make sure I get a quote. I think she was like, you're not serious, are you? I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that one. And I was oh, like, that was her. Okay. I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, that sounds familiar. Um, yeah, I mean, I, the, other, the, the other thing that jumped out to me, which made a lot of sense, is, well, if you need to learn SQL for whatever company, for whatever job, for whatever client you have, you can, just like you would have to learn any other new framework or any other piece of technology. Like it doesn't to me, I mean, it says more to me, like, what does this person think about Mongo? <laughs> Perhaps they're not alone, but I'll, I'll leave that alone for now. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. I, I, I so, so I'll, uh, let, let me, let me jump in um, because I addressed that and they were asking in their thread, in the thread, they were asking, um, why are they teaching Mongo? They should be teaching SQL and education is not complete without SQL is kind of their thought process. And I, I made the point that the choice to teach Mongo is a pedagogical choice. It's a teaching choice. It's not, um, it's defining the scope of the course and it's defining the bare minimum that this developer needs to be viable in the market without making a fool of themselves. And establishing a foundation from which they can grow their skills. Um, Mongo is about an order of magnitude easier than SQL, but it teaches you the fact that a database is a separate component. It gets spun up. It takes up a port. 
you need authentication to get in. There's such a thing as a connection string. You can do transactions. Those transactions have certain pro- you know asset properties. Um, those transactions are create, read, update, delete, list. Um, you can be creative with those transactions, so on and so forth. Um, or queries. Maybe I'm just mixing up terminology. But but anyway, um, these these choices that these bootcamps are making are to lay a foundation um, for the developers within 12 weeks. Like, how do you expect them to teach them all of front end or at least a large chunk of front end and then also teach them back end? That would be at least a year long course if you wanted to give them a full, fundamental, solid foundation. Um, and a year is a long time in this day and age. Um, the, the magic of boot camps is that you graduate in three, in three months. A lot of people find work immediately. A lot of people find work within three to six months. Some people, I would say the majority of people find work within a year. Um, the official statistics are within a year, uh, 80% median are employed in, in the industry within a year. Um, some boot camps sport a 95% rate. Some of them sport a 60% placement rate. So they're wildly successful in filling a market demand. And they really have to um, scope down and decide which niche in the market they want to fill. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think this person fully understands how bootcamp work, bootcamps work, which is a shame because bootcamps are going mainstream. Um, universities last year, they, uh, they graduated. I don't know if you guys saw my LinkedIn video that I posted yesterday. Um, but universities over the last, uh, let's say, uh, three years, they graduated, uh, 63,000, 70,000 and 77,000, uh, students across the fields of computer science and software engineering in three and four year degrees in universities and colleges. Um, meanwhile, boot camps graduated in those same years, they graduated, um, 13,000, 20,000. 33,000. So boot camps are growing at a 70% year-over-year rate. Universities are lagging behind that rate at 10%. In about three or four years, we're going to be talking about boot camps as a preferred way to send your kid to a technical education. Uh, we're going to be talking about the diversification of the boot camp industry. Boot camps are starting to stack on top of each other. Um, many, many, many students decide to take two, univers- two boot camp uh, courses rather than just one, um, in order to enhance their skill. So we're talking about um, a, a, basic, a basic change in how education is delivered and how training is delivered in this industry. And I really wanted to, you know, maybe, maybe this is a good segue into, into that conversation, which is really what I would love to talk about on this podcast. Yeah, sure. I'm, do- I'm done with that tweet anyway, except I guess maybe the final thing I'll say is you're talking to junior developers. What did you expect? Like, you know, even if they had three years of experience, you're not going to know everything. And it just seems like unrealistic expectations and perhaps a flawed understanding of how uh, how education works. <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. That that tweet irked me, and I was trying my best not to just rip into the person, just the idea. That yeah, but then I, brought, I was like, you know what would be perfect to talk to the it's a it's a fantastic uh, opener that that tweet <laughs> if you if you link it there's i think 74 comments now 85 retweets 150 likes so it's it's a uh, and uh, not many of those comments are kind to this poor soul so well everyone everyone uh 
everyone makes mistakes and everyone isn't perfect in, in some way. So we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Okay. So let's segue to actual just kind of boot camp and kind of discussion, but also education discussion and all that stuff. I always think about it like, what are the best ways to get started? Like, wh- how do you evaluate? Like, how do you pick a good one if you're interested in that sort of thing? And then the other side of that is if you're hiring, how do you know which boot camp? Because there's so many of them. How do you know which ones are, have a, I don't know, uh, a better reputation or, or in the end, produce better candidates? Like, on so both sides, how are people supposed to evaluate? That's a great, great question. Um, let me hit the first one first. If, so all of these boot camps are regulated federally, I believe, maybe on the state. I think in the states, it's, no, across North America, USA and Canada, it's on the state or province level. They're regulated. Most, if not all, states and provinces regulate these boot camps and require them to publish um, their numbers, their stati- statistics for the year. So how many students did they take in? How many graduated? Um, you can find that report on most boot camps' websites. If you don't find it there, I'm sure you can call them up and ask them for their numbers. And they'll give you um, a relatively, un- I mean, I'm saying relatively because they're publishing it and they'll want to present themselves in the best light. But they'll, um, they, they, you'll get a relatively fair and um, a relatively fair estimate of how good a certain bootcamp is from that number. Um, another possible way to... Um, judge a bootcamp is take a look at their alumni on LinkedIn, see where they are, see how many of them are in a certain type of company that you wish to work for or a certain field like front-end development or back-end development, um, or even the non-technical fields, product management. Um, they have sales engineering bootcamps now. Um, let's talk about, uh, just take a look at, um, take a look at those those boot camps students, the alumni, and see how well they've done in their careers. Um, another, yet another way to judge it is it's not just the boot camp you're judging, it's also you're judging the field that you're going into. So if you're going into, say, front end development, if you have a choice between a school that teaches you, um, I, I'm going to pick a, an obviously wrong choice, uh, jQuery, and a school that teaches you React, then Pick the school that's going to teach you the more viable technology for this market. Um, in the back end, if you have a choice between a school that teaches you Java or Python or JavaScript, Java will get you more enterprise jobs. It's more traditional. You're going to have to do, um, if you're really geeky and you really want to dig very deep into software engineering as it's perceived by enterprise companies and 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 people who want solidity and um, you know very performant systems or just very large companies like if you want to go into work like that or or companies like that then you would go for the java bootcamp if you wanted to work in the web if you wanted to be a front-end developer or you wanted to just work um on in an environment where a little bit of cross-disciplinary um, skill is appreciated, um, JavaScript bootcamp might be better for you because that kind of leads from um, backend to frontend, and you can start exercising your design skills. It becomes a very natural transition for you to become a full-stack developer, and um, that that's actually a great way to even um, 
maybe start a, a consulting business. Uh, JavaScript has a low barrier to entry. You can go there, you can learn it, you can learn enough of it to be really good at it. Um, and then if you have a management background or if you have an entrepreneurial background, a JavaScript, a, a JavaScript bootcamp might be the right step for you to get those technical skills you need to start a consultancy or a startup. Um, if, you if you're going into Python, then that'll give you um, data science. It's very close to data science. You'll be able to work with very, very smart uh, statisticians and computer scientists if you go into Python, potentially. Um, it won't close the door to back-end web development, but it might not be easy to get into front-end web development through Python. Not necessarily, um, but it does open an avenue into machine learning and AI and data engineering. So you, you have to know what kind of field you're currently interested in and what, can, what field you want to commit to for one year or two years. Of course, after the one year or two years are over, you can, of course, change your field. Um, software development is really easy to move around in once you get in, but... Um, that, that, that first one or two years, what is it that you want to do? So that's how I would evaluate. It's not just the performance of the bootcamp, but also uh, match your personality and your background with the field that you're going into. So that's from the student's perspective. Yeah. I, a lot of that makes sense. I think the the sort of safety in numbers almost, like if, it, if a lot of people are going, I, I don't know, to me that just make, because I'm, you know, at, at heart of, rebellious teenager and i'd be like well that's confusing i don't i pick something that's people don't necessarily go to or maybe doesn't have you know hundreds of thousands of students but that could also be a really dumb way to make a decision so which i can actually attest to in, in other parts of my life okay so let's say you're hiring right and somebody has a boot camp on their resume how do you know if that's a good is it the same formula or, or is there other other things that you should be thinking about hiring is my favorite topic it's um uh, we've perfected it on our end, partially because we do bootcamp. Uh, we do these hackathons so frequently, so we never have um, a lack of talent. Like it's for us, from our perspective, the talent shortage is a lie. Like that's that's how we feel in Mintbean. Um, but of course, we know that the greater industry doesn't have the advantage of having an in-house hackathon that you can hire from. Um, but what what uh, what we've done is. We've managed to figure out exactly what it is that you should be filtering for at every single step of the hiring process. And when you're hiring for a junior developer, forget you know boot camps, but let's just call it junior developers. I'm going to include self-taught developers like myself in that category. I'm going to include um, university grads in that category. Junior developers as a whole, uh, there's no, unfortunately, there's no industry standard certificate or seal of quality um, that's going to tell you, yeah, this developer knows what they're doing. There's no such thing. I don't care if you graduated from MIT or Waterloo. That might make it more likely that you're a good engineer. Doesn't mean you're a good engineer. Um, so companies are... They have the unenviable task of having to filter and test all of these developers, and it's it's really expensive task. It's really expensive to do that, and I haven't really seen a compelling solution in the market that does it for you. Um, like pre vetted developers, if there was a source of pre vetted developers, that's a great market to get into. If somebody can figure that out, maybe somebody will. After listening to this episode, I don't know, but um, that's that's probably the biggest missing chunk in the puzzle right now in the industry is we don't know 
how good a developer is without testing them. And we don't even have any idea how good they are. Forget no. We don't. We have no idea how good they are. Um, so uh, most companies have a three-tier or four-tier testing process or vetting process for developers. Uh, some of them have two tiers. One tier is so rare it might might as well not exist. Uh, they have one tier uh, acceptance for senior developers sometimes or architects sometimes, and that's unwise. Um, but there's, you know, usually there's three steps or four steps in the interview process. And um, about 70%, this is an estimate, about 70% of companies in my estimate uh, don't optimize that funnel. And that's where they lose out on getting really sharp junior developers. They either test too early or they test for the wrong things, or their job description is out of whack and they scare away all the good juniors, or um, their expectations are misaligned with the hiring manager's expectations, so on and so forth. So um, when you're hiring for juniors, regardless of when you're whether you're hiring from a boot camp or not, the first thing you should do is you should just optimize your hiring funnel. And I think this is, you know, um, it sounds like table stakes for HR companies and recruiters. Like this, this is table stakes stuff. I'm not talking about anything revolutionary, but um, when you're hiring for a junior developer, this is this is really important because you're dealing with volume. If I put up a junior developer ad today, I'll get by tomorrow a hundred applications. By the end of the weekend, today's Friday, I'll have maybe. 300 or 400 on a free job posting on Indeed without any spend. <laughs> so that's a lot of people that I can get. So you, it's, a, it's, it's a problem of high volume, very low signal. And in that situation, you kind of have to optimize for that. Unfortunately, most companies either hire the um, they either don't optimize their funnel, so their hiring costs become so extravagantly expensive that they don't think it's worth hiring a junior developer. Yeah, no, that's that was uh, exactly where I was going next. Is like the the I feel like a lot of companies make that decision, you know, where it's just too hard. Like it, it's for whatever reason, it's too organizationally. They're just not kind of equipped for that, or they've maybe brought with them some preconceived notions of what a junior developer can do or can do how long it would take to, I'm using air quotes, ramp, because that means something different to everybody. And also the interview, I mean, I'm not, we could spend an entire other episode on on what it's like to interview uh, as a developer. I've never done it, but my understanding is that there are like, you know, a handful of kind of standard questions, but then everything else is bespoke or some random twist or ultimately so esoteric as to be like you can't really figure out if it's a joke or not because i mean as someone who 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 makes content um the number of times that i see you know dev interview questions written and then compiled and then put up on a blog somewhere there's there's hundreds of them so yeah that seems to be like that's a that's a signal of an of a of a problem or at least an inefficiency, <laughs> at least an inefficient system, right? Like why, how could you possibly, if it's, yeah, I could understand some very, if your industry is like, yeah, super narrow or there's some kind of skill you're optimizing for, but otherwise it feels like, um, Ooh, I almost said vanity. Like it almost seems like you're, you just kind of a personal preference. Like you, this is just kind of what you like as the hiring manager. And so that's what you're going to ask. Maybe the organization itself. 
The worst part is when they ask algorithm questions, when the job is a front-end development job and nobody cares about algorithms in the front-end. Um, I think the second worst is when they ask you to whiteboard and they don't test you at all. They just ask you to whiteboard. And most junior developers who are worth their salt, um, they suck at whiteboarding because they're so hands-on in the text editor. They'd rather just code something up. But you ask them to do a whiteboarding session in the first interview, they fail, you reject them. And this is Bayesian, right? Like every single step is a percentage probability. And if any one of those steps is near a 0% probability of finding a good developer, then your entire funnel fails. So it's like, it's a, it's an insidious problem. And most companies don't look at it in terms of analytics. They just look at it in terms of, oh yeah, we're just going to filter them in. Well, guys, like you gotta, you, you gotta be a bit more mindful and compassionate for the developer. I think uh, I'd love to hear from, if we have time, I'd love to hear from Kate about her experience after she graduated um, from that bootcamp. Yeah, <laughs> I, so um, I did do a boot camp. Uh, it's called Epicotus. It's West Coast. It's it was in Portland, Oregon, and then they have one in Seattle. Uh, they're now remote. Uh, they have a full time remote program. As we're listening, I'm you know so I did a course Java Android. Uh, definitely didn't have the self awareness that you were talking about earlier on <laughs> what course to pick. <laughs> um, uh, but that was the course I did, and um, it was actually. You know, the reason I picked it was actually because it was a little bit longer than some other ones I saw. Um, so it was like five weeks uh, Java, five weeks JavaScript, five weeks Android, then a five-week um, internship. So um, that was appealing to me. But it, again, it, like it's a lot of time and um, like not everyone has that time, right? Uh, so um, that's why I picked it. But then I kind of had in my mind that I just wanted to learn more about tech and I wanted to work in tech, but not necessarily be... Um, an engineer. So, you know, I might be part of the problem because now I work in um, marketing, but um, I mean, it did give me like, if anything, it gave me kind of a visual of, you know, like, oh, this is what people are talking about when they talk about this. This is what people are talking about this. Um, and now I've been working at LogRocket for, you know, almost three years. And that's a lot of reading about code now doing talking to people about code. Um, I'm kind of now just, you know, I'm still learning. I'm just now kind of fully getting like, okay, this is actually, you know, what this looks like. And, um, so it's, it's not like I just came out of the boot camp like ready to go, you know, I mean, it's still, uh, definitely, definitely a lot to learn for sure. Definitely. I think it's just the beginning of your journey after you graduate boot camp, And, um, I, I think when people think about bootcamp, they kind of have this vision in their mind, oh yeah, I'm going to graduate and I'm going to become a software de developer and I'm going to write code. Sometimes what ends up happening is you find your passion in the tech industry and the bootcamp enables you to get into a really awesome position that's tailor-made for your personality and your interests, but isn't code. Uh, it happened to my wife, uh, Navi. She's my partner in Mintbean as well. And she graduated from uh, General Assembly in Toronto in Canada. Um, she did Ruby on Rails and she didn't really want to code. She she isn't somebody who really enjoys sitting down and typing away at a desk for hours and hours at a time. It's just not part of her personality. And I love her for it. She's awesome. Um, I, if she was like me, um, I think I would, I wouldn't be, uh, I, I, I don't think I'd be very happy if she was a lot like me and she could just be quiet for long periods of time, not talk to each other. No, like she loves talking to people. And that's the best part about her personality. She 
Uh, she's now running this company with me. And if she didn't have that bootcamp education, she wouldn't be able to do the marketing and relationship work that this industry requires. You can't work in this industry unless you know what's being like it's it's like working in um it's like working in uh the car industry and in the automotive industry without ever having driven a car. Like Sure. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I think like as you're talking to I mean, so I graduated uh I got a four year degree and then I kind of like I worked for a little bit and I was kind of like, you know, oh crap. Like I realized I maybe should have focused more on like this tech stuff because I like it. I just don't understand it. And I think that maybe it's a smaller amount, smaller percentage of people at the time. But I think there is like a lot of people who will be in that boat as like tech, you know, gets bigger and um, more jobs around it, stuff like that. I, I think so. I mean, the, the other thing that I think Maybe not everyone realizes when they come out of a boot camp and they decide, you know what, I, I don't necessarily want to write code. It was still for for me when I was looking to build the team. Kate was the first hire um, after me, <laughs> and uh, it was like her having attended a boot camp put her um, so far ahead of other candidates. So, like, if the job is to edit technical content meant for front end developers. It's kind of a no-brainer that we should probably spend some time talking to Kate. And it, yeah, it, Brian hired me. So <laughs> it was full circle. And it worked out. Yeah. And it worked out. <laughs> um, I would be curious. Uh, we just had Anthony Campolo on the episode um, not too long ago, and he talked a little bit about you know uh, Lambda School. Um, I'm kind of curious your thoughts around Lambda as, as a boot camp. I, I think Lambda is fine. I don't. Uh, I, when I see students from Lambda. They're fine. They know their thing. They're at. Um, I, I don't have any negative connotations with those students. I haven't worked with enough of them as a mentor. Like I, I, I mentor some of them for free, just as uh, part of my work. And I haven't mentored any Lambda school students directly, so I can't say that I have. I can't recommend. But I can't not recommend either. Um, I don't have a negative opinion about Lambda students from what I've seen. From a distance, as a hackathon host, from seeing their work, I, I think they're fine. Now, uh, just as a recap for people who are listening, uh, Lambda School does something that a lot of boot camps do, which is income sharing agreements, or ISAs. And ISAs are um, a way to finance your education without taking on debt or loan um, w- without really spending money upfront or going into credit card debt, um, you can promise the bootcamp. So you pledge to the bootcamp that in return for a 12-week or 16-week or 20-week education, you promise that you'll give a certain percentage of your first year or your first two years check, your, your paycheck, to the bootcamp. And the percentage, I believe, I, I don't know what the percentages are. I know they're not super high. I think it's something like 5 or 10%, maybe, maybe 20 at most, which, you know, for, um, for, for somebody who really wants to get into the industry, maybe doesn't have um, the financial backing or support they need to get in, that's, that's, uh, that's a game changer. That's a way for somebody to become a software developer, potentially earn $60,000 in their first job um, after bootcamp, potentially. Um, it's a game changer, and it's an excellent, in my opinion, way um, to democratize the software development industry. Now, uh, they came under um, 
some scrutiny and I believe they were either fined or they had a lawsuit. I can't remember what the exact circumstance was, but they they got into some trouble for uh, certain, I believe, marketing practices, if I remember correctly, um, where they were over-promising their students, something along those lines. Of course, they made a mistake and that was proven and they were found um, to have you know, crossed the line and they were, they were, they were fined. Um, but I, I want to do a reality check on everybody who's familiar with the topic. And even if you're not familiar with the topic, I just wanted to do a reality check. Boot camps are 10 years old. The first boot camp was started in 2011. And of course, for a, a sector that's only 10 years old, that's um, a, a lot of us our age have kids. That's, that, that's younger than a lot of our kids these days. Like, you know, like um, my, my, my nieces are 13 and 16. Boot camps are younger than my nieces. And come on, right? New industry. Um, they're going to make some mistakes. Now, I've done stupid things in my past as a kid. You know, I got into trouble as a teenager, sure. Um, nothing too serious. Um, and I, I'm looking at this from the perspective of, okay, this is a brand new industry. Regulation just came in less than five or six years ago. Um, we're just starting to um, come into our own as an industry. And if one large player got into trouble for over-aggressive marketing tactics, which they've then fixed and they've paid a penalty for, I don't think that should be held against them because that's just a mistake that they made while maturing as a company and also as an industry. So yeah, yeah, they absolutely got in trouble. And sure, they probably did something wrong. I would even say something bad, um, but does that what what does that say about us as a society that we're unforgiving of innovation? Does that say that we're unforgiving of people who want to strike out on their own, be rebellious, go against the trend, uh, buck people's expectations, and teach people how to be actual software developers in twelve weeks? I mean, we have a we have an, a nationwide. Um, well, economy-wide, I'll, I'll include the Western world as a whole, we have a massive shortage of software developers. And what we should be doing at this point is subsidizing boot camps, funneling money towards them, getting them the grants they need, getting them um, the help they need in order to grow, because these people are actually churning out developers at a speed that universities cannot keep up with. Um, I would go as far as to say that they might possibly um, make the university sector obsolete in technical training within the next three or four years. And um, a lot of universities are starting up bootcamp programs. The University of Toronto has a bootcamp program, for example. I know um, I've heard whisperings of other universities who also have bootcamp programs of their own. And this whole, this whole sector needs to be subsidized and helped, not... Um, not not kicked down while they're still i mean they're they're babies like these are these are this is a young industry we should be encouraging people who are solving real industrial economic problems of talent shortage not um not taking uh one mistake that one player did and painting the whole industry um with that one off mistake uh, as bad or um disreputable i think that's unfair and i think we're maybe losing sight of the big picture over here Sure. Yeah. No, that's, that was a great answer. And I think um, Anthony had kind of talked to in his episode about, you know, 
uh, we can give all this advice, but like, ultimately this is like, these are people's lives, right? You know, like this is like people's livelihoods, uh, life paths, like the, it weighs a little heavier when you're dealing with, you know, those, uh, sort of decisions. So, um, yeah, it absolutely affects people's lives. Now, um, how many people that, that we all know over here collectively, how many people graduated from whatever university program we all went to individually? Um, how many people do you know as a percentage from your cohort or your, or your graduating class that actually found work in the industry that they graduated in? Well, if you're asking me, I don't use my degrees at all. There so, you go. So Kate has some. It's it is it really depends. Like I think if you have a let's just say like a business degree, it's pretty likely you're going to end up in in some business field. If you have an if you have an accounting degree, you're probably going to end up in accounting. Yeah, any other I have I happen to have liberal arts majors and that can be flexible. So mm-hmm. yeah. Well, how many how many people do you know? How many ex classmates, you know, friends from back then do you know who struggled after graduating from university? Like I know many. I graduated in finance myself, and I had to work two and a half years in retail, um, managing retail stores because finance just didn't have the opportunities back then. Um, there were too many finance grads. Most of my class ended up not in finance. They ended up either in operations or in um, another uh, field altogether, marketing, operations, nothing related to finance. And if they all went and they sued the university for failing them, um, I, I think that's a little... Uh, that, 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 I, I don't think that's... A, I don't think that that would be fair to the university. I think the boot camps are doing what they can. And yeah, like don't overpromise for sure. And I think that was a reality check that Lambda School and the rest of the industry needed. Like, okay, we need to be more fair and we need to be more transparent about our outcomes. But I, I think it's easy to punch somebody who's an underdog and get away with it. It's easy to say, oh, these boot camps, they're shady. How can they even work? Let's sue them. They're liars. They're cheats. Um, and that problem exists, I think, mainly because boot camps are new. They're not trusted yet by the mainstream because they are new. And their PR problem stems from them being new, not from, um, n- not from anything else. And when somebody has a PR problem, it's really easy to go cancel culture on them. It's real easy. Um, but you know, you try and pull that with the university, they have lobbyists, they have lawyers, they have the funds they need to keep them safe. They have the friends they need in high places from 400, 500 years of tradition and old money. And um, they have the connections in high places they need to keep their industry safe. Boot camps don't have that. And they don't have the reputation either. So it's really easy to punch them and to, you know, uh, to, to come down hard on them. And most of the public will even agree with you right now that, oh, yeah, how can you become a software engineer in 12 weeks? It's hard to, it's hard to argue with that without, um, w- without sitting the person down and explaining to them over a cup of coffee that software development, A, is not engineering, and B, yes, you can learn how to code in 12 weeks, and here's the data to prove it. It's just a soundbite that you have to fight right now. And I think that PR problem is going to um, solve itself in the next five to 10 years. I'm thinking a lot about the comparison between what kind of responsibility do the universities, formal you know institutions have to students um, and boot camps and comparing them. I mean, it is possible to 
to evaluate each of them independently. Like you don't necessarily have to tie whether or not a boot camp is necessarily uh, acting ethically versus say a university where as someone who carries a lot of student loans, I'm not thrilled about it, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't know. There, I, and I don't think there's a short answer for that. Right. I'd feel like, yes, like ultimately I'm not sure that anyone would, I'm not sure, not sure that I'd want to meet someone who <laughs> wasn't interested in protecting those students at a boot camp. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't, I don't necessarily disagree with, um, the overall thrust of what you're saying. I do have one last question that's unrelated, but I do feel yeah, like yeah. we've been so we've been we've spoken so highly of boot camps and talked about the advantages a lot. What are they not good at? What are some things that you know? Whether it's because they're new or um, just because of the format, like what are the things that? Or if you had to pick one thing, how about that? I'll make it easier. This is that interview question where what are you not good at, right? I mean, let, let's uh, let, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Um, I mean, I'm not We're just a workaholic. Yeah, um, I, I think. I think boot camps are not very good at computer science. They're they're not really good at giving the student the fundamental knowledge they need to advance their career past the two or three year mark. Um, most students from boot camps, after establishing a career, if they really want to go technical and they want to go deep on the technical stuff, they want to become, say, a software architect, they probably have to supplement their bootcamp education with possibly a, a degree. So I did most of a master's degree in software engineering after I was established as a self-taught developer. And I would in no way, shape, or form denigrate or disparage university educations. All I'm saying is, you know, all I'm saying is boot camps are better at some things, but boot camps are not good at um, giving you that knowledge of how computers actually work. And that stuff is invaluable when you, um, when you want to keep up to date with your skill set, when, you know, you, you don't understand how a variable assignment works and all of a sudden um, a memory managed language might become popular for whatever reason. There's a chip shortage, um, you know, there's a whole situation in Taiwan with TSMC and the chip shortage where uh, computers are becoming more and more expensive and we don't know how that whole supply chain problem is going to end up. Maybe we'll end up in a semi-dark age where we have, um, we have to actually care about performance again for computers. I mean, anything could happen. The science fiction scenario, I'm just going to, I'm going to throw it in there for color. Um, But, uh, you know, let's say you had a memory managed language that was important for performance. Um, A bootcamp would not have prepared a student for that kind of drastic career shift. And those kinds of drastic career shifts have happened every decade in this industry. So, I don't think they set the student up for that. They set them up for a tactical move into the industry, but not for a strategic long-term career. That's something that's on the student's own shoulders. Universities are fantastic at giving you that knowledge base. So that that is definitely, you know, there, you, you, get, um, you get what you're paying for in many ways. Like a four-year degree will give you four years of theoretical knowledge, a uh, 12-week tactical crash course will give you the skills you need to get into the industry. But in terms of long-term, you are getting what you're paying for, and you will have to supplement your education with something a bit more solid, a bit more theoretical over the course of your career, maybe part-time. That makes sense to me. Monarch, that is it for us. I really enjoyed the conversation. I think this is an interesting one. Thank you. I did too. Nice.
this is the time where uh, we ask you if you'd like to plug anything, any one. What are the things that you think people should know about? The floor is yours. As of the recording of this podcast, we haven't announced it yet, but by the time the podcast comes out, it'll be uh, announced. Um, we're going to be hosting uh, the first event of its kind. We're going to be hosting a conference, a very large conference in October for boot camps, boot camp students, educators, faculty, and staff, um, and hiring managers, companies, recruiters, tech companies who want to um, talk about this conversation that we just had um, in this podcast. We want to continue that conversation about boot camps, learn more about this boot camp industry, get involved, make connections, and um, maybe get educated about what boot camps are bringing to the table in 2021. Um, there's, uh, this is the first time I'm actually um, announcing it. So maybe this is actually, this might actually be the first time I announce it on the air by the time this comes out. Um, we're announcing the Eon conference. Um, you can find it at eon.mintbean.io. And the conference is um, a celebration of the bootcamp industry, um, of the 10-year anniversary of the bootcamp industry. It happens on Teacher's Day in October, on October 5th through 8th. And we'll be having conversations that do away with all of the misperceptions, the prejudices, and perhaps the uh, ignorance of um, where we find ourselves today when it comes to education. I think we have a lot of work, a lot of groundwork to do before we can fix the overall education problem that exists today in the United States and Canada, where people are going into debt, where people are taking on student loans and going into debt. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to fix that situation. And boot camps are a viable solution or part of a mix of solutions to that problem. We're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about what they're good at, what they're not good at. And um, along with that, we're also going to be talking about developer relations. We'll be talking about online education, um, APIs, serverless, all that good stuff with a focus on boot camps and how they fit into this massive uh, ecosystem of the tech industry that we're all in today. So that happens on October 5th. So um, early bird tickets are probably going to be open by the time this podcast goes out. Um, if you're a bootcamp student, you can get a ticket for free from your, from your bootcamp. And if you are an educator, you can get in touch with us to get those free tickets for your students. Um, and yeah, yeah. Um, very, very excited about it, and I think uh, I, I think uh, it'd be a very valuable experience for any bootcamp student or uh, bootcamp staff or hiring manager or tech company or recruiter to come in and uh, get connected with what's going on, um, get get a feeling for what's going on on the on the, uh, on the ground floor here. That's very cool. We'll have all of the relevant links and stuff if it's in the show notes for sure. It does make me wish that we, Kate, just maybe for future episodes, it makes me wish that I had like a breaking news button I could hit with a like cool sound. I don't know how slick we want our, our producing <laughs> to be, but I do. And I, so every now and then we break news on Pod Rock, and I want to be able to sound like a cheesy radio show. Noted, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I will send I, I will send the both of you uh, tickets. Um, thank you for having me on the show, and I really appreciate uh, the time you guys have spent. This was a great conversation, and I got to know know y'all better. So thank you. Yeah, no, it was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mark. <laughs> See ya. Hi. Thanks for listening. 
Um, please remember to like, subscribe, uh, email me if you want, even though none of you do. Go to logrocket.com and, and try it out. It's free to try. Then it costs money, but yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks.